Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We've been studying through Daniel for a while, um, and we are in the middle of chapter 9. And so today we're going to be look, starting at ch- verse number 20 uh, through 27, 20 through 27 today. So um, if you're able, stand with me. I'm going to read the text, and then after I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. Starting in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have come out. <clears throat> to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 72 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Then after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people and to the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifices and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decree, uh, decreed end is poured out on the desolator. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you've given to us. We pray for um, this morning that you would help us uh, be able to see and understand this, this difficult text. And you'd give me uh, recollection to be able to say things correctly. And of course, um, nothing that's incorrect. If I say anything wrong, uh, erase it out of our minds. And the things that are true and right, uh, help us remember those things. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we look at this text. Um, our hearts and our minds would be pointed towards Jesus uh, who is um, the great redeemer of all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, since this is second service, and I've already preached this crazy text once, you're actually going to get the cleaned up, more understandable, better version of it. And so you came to the right one today. Uh, so I can go ahead and tell you that. Can you make it a little bit brighter in here? I'm sorry. I, I just, I like it. Yeah, there we go. All right, now I can see the, the, the words. All right, so... um. One, one uh, commentator I read said this. Um, these are, talking about starting at verse 24, 20, 21, 22, 23, pretty easy. Gabriel comes up and he says, hey, I want to tell you something, Daniel. God loves you. Listen. All right, so that's easy to understand. Uh, 24, 25, 26, 27, the actual vision, uh, he writes this. Those four verses are the most controversial verses in the Bible. And one commentator says that it is the most difficult text in the book. He, he could mean Daniel, but he, he could also just mean Bible, which is, it's tough. So when we get to 24, uh, we'll see how, how, how interesting it'll be. One uh, 
preacher as he's preaching this particular text says, and what follows as he's about to preach this verse says, and what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settled on the matter, which I do too. I do too. I reserve the right to change my mind in 10 minutes. Um, and then he says, what I'm about to unfold or teach will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. So uh, hopefully you're encouraged. Probably you'll be confused. But if you have any questions, obviously you can come up and talk to me afterwards. Um, so as we go into these verses, let's just all realize that we're dealing with prophecy, end times prophecy, difficult things to understand, difficult language, difficult text, uh, and difficult interpretations. And so there's disagreement uh, even among the elders on how to interpret end times. Uh, and so because there's disagreement, let's just realize end times, eschatology, same word, uh, is a third tier issue. First tier is how you get saved. Second tier is a lot of important things, you know, but third tier is like, okay, we're talking about end times. You can disagree on this and be a Christian. And we're going to be largely dealing with that. What I'm going to try to do as we talk about end times and how it can be interpreted a lot of different ways is still bring us back to main points of application, which is Jesus does these things. Praise Jesus. Live your life for Jesus. That, everybody can agree on that. So, um, even though uh, we have some hard things to try to interpret, I, I want to try to keep the main interpretation or the main points uh, of, of application there. So uh, if you didn't get one of these, um, I, what I did is I print, they're out there in the lobby, but I went ahead and printed out like an entire sheet of the notes today because following is decently easy on the screen. But if you see this, you can actually see there's two main points. The first, that first top is just the first four verses. And then the next four verses are all of that and how it's outlined. And so sometimes you have an outline. It's easier to follow. It's easier to understand. I put them out there on the table. I think they're still out there on the, uh, the table with the hand sanitizer. But if you want to grab these, it's fine. Go grab one. Uh, it should be easier to follow if you have that. So um, anyway, uh, what we're going to do is look at the first section and 20, 21, 22, 23, where Gabriel shows up and tells Daniel he loves him. Uh, and then we'll look at the, the second section, which is, we'll take the, the main bulk of our time. Uh, but the main idea of all of this that we're going to look at is, this is all about the glorious work of Jesus and how Jesus is going to accomplish this entire work. And so uh, as we go to verse 20, we're going to zoom in on da Daniel's He's going to pray powerfully. He's, he's finished as we looked. You can go ahead and put up number one there. Or, or yeah, Daniel's prayer. So uh, last week in 1 through 19, I talked about uh, things that we can know about prayer, five effective things that we can know about prayer. Uh, and so now he's finished. And as he's uh, praying, um, Gabriel shows up. And Daniel is going to help us understand some things about the prayer. So first, in 20 and 21, it says, while I was st still speaking... In the middle of my prayer, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, presenting my plea before the Lord, uh, before the holy hill of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, I was still saying the words, I haven't even finished actually doing everything I say, Daniel's prayer was so effective, it was so good, it was so right, that God was literally moved uh, to the point of, while he was still praying, God went and said, Gabriel, go down there right now and tell him that I'm glad that he said this. I'm going to answer his prayer. Uh, I want to tell him, I want you to tell him that I love him. I got a whole word for him about the whole vision of how the world's going to end. Like, go, Gabriel, right now. And so that's what happens. Uh, it says, 
While I was still speaking a prayer, the man Gabriel, who had sent in the vision, came in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So God was so moved by this uh, that, that he sent Gabriel in the middle of a prayer. Just imagine praying such a right-worded, righteous, good prayer that while you are still, you're not even done. God's so moved by it that he literally answers it by sending not a form of an angel, not a vision of an angel, an actual angel. Ever done it? I'd love in front of you to start talking to you and say, God loves your prayer and God loves you. Never done it. I'd love to. But that's how, just to give you a picture of how righteous and awesome Daniel was. Uh, he's not Jesus, but that's, that's where Daniel is in his walk with God, you know, by the time he's some 70 and 80. So uh, God loves this prayer so much that he answered it literally immediately. And what was it that he was praying? What, what was it that he was actually saying that God loved so much? Just a reminder that he was praying a confession of sin for himself and his people. Um, and, and so we should make this a, a continual part of our life. Calvin uh, provides for us a sobering reminder that it's good for us to confess our sin as Daniel is here. He says, this then there is our for our righteousness, Calvin says, to confess ourselves guilty in order that God will come gratuitously and absolve us. For whom did Christ wish to, to tell the petition, forgive us our debts, which is what we should say when we for, ask for God for confession and forgiveness of sin. He says, surely his disciples, his disciples are the one who are supposed to pray this. If anyone thinks that he has no need of this kind of form of prayer, which is confession and sin, then let him, Calvin writes, depart from the school of Christ and enter into a herd of swine. Calvin has a way with words. Uh, but the main point, as Dale Ralph Davis says, that we as believers are never to stop mourning over our sin. We are never to stop uh, realizing that confession of sin is an ongoing part process of being a believer in Christ. Uh, and uh, it belongs to us all. The elementary stage of the Christian spirit, experience is something that we stay in in regard to always making sure that we are confessing our sin. It's to be a preoccupation of all that are Christians to continually confess their sin. Not because you're getting saved again as you do it. You're already saved. You're reminding yourself of the goodness of God in forgiving you, but you continually confess your sin and repent of your sin. Uh, and it reminds you of this great forgiveness that Jesus has given to you. So as Daniel's praying, that's what happens. And it says that the man Gabriel comes to him while he's doing this in verse 21. The man Gabriel uh, his name means strong man of God. It's the same Gabriel that appeared to him in the previous chapter, in chapter 8. It's the same Gabriel that appears to Zechariah to say, your son's going to be John the Baptist. It's the same Gabriel that appears to Mary that says, your son's going to be Jesus. Um, this man, Gabriel, comes and appears to him, as it says, at swift flight. Uh, this is just a, a literal kind of way. God's using anthropomorphic language, uh, language used that men use to understand something about God. Uh, He's doing this to say that he was sent uh, immediately and he's weary from his journey. Now, he's not necessarily, because he's an angel, weary from the journey. Maybe he, he, he was. But the point is, he came a long way to tell you this. And he came, it says, at the end, if you look at that, at Swift Light, at the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the evening sacrifice is very interesting language to be using. Because Daniel has been in Babylon for 70 years. This is language in telling time that was something that would be happening in Jerusalem. And he's not in Jerusalem, and he hasn't been in Jerusalem for 70 years. Uh, we know the temple is destroyed in 586, and this is around 439, which means it's been at least 50 years since the temple was even used. And so Daniel's been gone for 70. The temple's been destroyed for around 50. And yet it says, 
that the Gabriel came, as Daniel tries to explain it, at the time of the evening sacrifice, meaning that even though Daniel hadn't been in Jerusalem for 70 years and the temple hasn't even been used in 50 years, Daniel still thinks like an Israelite and still operates on Jerusalem time, even though he's in Babylon, which is a good picture for us to understand something of how we're supposed to be in the world but not of it. And so Daniel is in the world, he's surrounded in Babylon, but still living as an Israelite and still operating in the mindset of uh, as an Israelite. He's still singing the Lord's song in a foreign land, which for us means since we are in Babylon, our, our, our Babylon, you know, Daniel's in a foreign land and we're in a foreign land because our citizenship is in heaven, that we're suppo- still supposed to be like Daniel and live uh, in Christ's mindset to maintain a mindset of our identity. We share the gospel with them, but we don't become like the world, uh, like Daniel. And so a good, a good application for us as we look at that. And that, uh, so that's the first little part there where it says Daniel prays for his people. And it brings us to number B here, where Daniel is going to, God's going to answer Daniel's prayer immediately in verse 22. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have come now to give you insight and understanding. Now, uh, I just told you that the, the insight and the understanding he's coming to give him is the vision in verses 24 through 27, the four most confusing verses in the Bible. So Gabriel, uh, <laughs> be a better spokesman. No, I'm just kidding. So to be fair, I don't think that Daniel misunderstood it at all. If Daniel can understand, you know, foreign king's dreams and be like, oh, it means this, then the vision given to Daniel, whenever he, Daniel's, okay, got it. Yeah, I got it. Um, I just think the problem obviously is with, with us, as we read it, that we're not Daniel, and it's difficult to read and understand things, especially hard texts. So that doesn't mean, we'll just say, forget it. I don't have to worry about it if it's too hard. Instead, it means this. When we see this difficult and understand, uh, difficult to understand thing, but Gabriel says, I've come to give Daniel insight and understanding, it means it can be understood, uh, and we should strive to understand it. And we might not ever achieve that perfectly, but we still should. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5 says, Make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me into your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you I'll wait all the day long. So the declaration for us there in the Psalms is that we should be people that want to learn uh, the, the truths of God from his scriptures and that we should beg to the Lord to teach us and give us understanding, even these hard verses that are hard to understand. And it says at verse 23, uh, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy. So back in Daniel, uh, when he, he actually starts the prayer in verse 3, uh, when you can start reading the text of, this, of the actual prayer, Daniel later writes at, that the angel said, right when you started praying at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. God heard it and sent me and wanted me to tell you something. I have come to tell you, here it is, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and the vision. I came to tell you, God loves you, Daniel. I mean, he loves that you're confessing your sin of your people uh, and yourself. And so I want to tell you something that's massively encouraging about how the Lord's going to restore all. I, I know you're in exile and I know things are difficult, but man, listen to what God's about to do. So he comes to tell him that, but he comes and he says a word went out, uh, meaning from God, and he tells him, you are greatly loved. Uh, Danny Aiken says this, this is great. Those whom the Lord loves, he hears. Those who are greatly loved, God honors. Daniel is precious in the sight of God. 
and therefore so are his prayers. And God values the prayer, the prayers of his faithful and righteous saints or the believers. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Daniel was loved in heaven because he lived for the Lord. The waking moments that Daniel had were dominated by God's covenant purpose, purposes, and he lived to see God's city restored so that the Lord's name might be praised among the nations. So if, if you, when we get to the vision, if you totally forget all that and you're like, that's too confusing, I don't even want to understand it, that's fine. If there's anything that you hear this morning, I want you to hear this. Like Daniel, when you're in Christ, this is what's true of you. And I want you to hear this, church. You are greatly loved by Jesus. What else could there be that's more important than that? Nothing. You are greatly loved by Jesus. Some of you just need to, after a difficult month or a difficult year or a difficult set of years, decades, whatever, you are greatly loved by Jesus. Jesus loves you very much. And some of you just need to hear that and realize nothing else ultimately in the universe matters besides the fact that Jesus Christ loves me best demonstrated by his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the God the Father, where he intercedes for us right now. Jesus Christ loves you. That's so encouraging. We could just pray and stop right now, but I still have like an hour. All right. Um, I'm kind of kidding. All right. So that brings us to, that brings us to verse 24. I'm going to do in verse 24. And as I said, if you saw this, some of y'all might have just come in. If you saw this out on the lobby table where the hand sanitizer is, this is helpful. This is the, this, we just did that. We're about to do all of this. And so seeing it in an outline form, organized in some kind of manner, can help. All right. So here we go. Verse 24. Now, Verse 24, compared to verse 25, 26, and 27, are easier to understand than uh, the last three. So verse 24 is pretty easy to understand, and it's because uh, it is the main thing. And so we can all rejoice in verse 24 about how verse 24 tells us, here's the big thing that God's going to do. And verse 25 and 26 and 27 are like, and here's how it's going to take place. And that's... That's jumbled with a lot of words that are hard to interpret, maybe symbolic, maybe literal. And so, but verse 24 of the, of the vision, uh, very easy to understand, um, except for the first two words. But other than that, <laughs> the rest of it, the, it where he, he tells us his accomplishments, they're great. So verse 24, 70 weeks. All right, word week, so not weeks, 70 weeks. There, uh, the word in Hebrew where you see the word weeks is not weeks, um, and it shouldn't be translated weeks. The word there is literally sevens. Um, there's not one place where you should see that word weeks and think that it's actually weeks. It's actually sevens. So when you see 70 sevens, what he's trying to say is 70 times seven. Now, 70 times seven equals what? Well, it equals 490, but 490 what? Well, okay, that's the problem. So it could be 490 weeks. It could be 490 days. It could be 490 years. Uh, I think it means years, uh, and I'll explain why. But 77, so what I've actually done, and feel free to do this because this is English. This isn't like the original uh, Aramaic, we're back to Hebrew, the original Hebrew that Daniel wrote. So if you want to, you can go to that word weeks. And what I've done in every place here, I've scratched out the word weeks, and I've written sevens above it because the literal translation is 77s. 
So what we have right now is 70 sevens. There's, there's 70, I'm going to just start saying years. Uh, there's um, 70 sevens, which is 490. So we have 490 years that he's talking about. There's 490 years that are going to take place. Now what I want, to, I want you to help, go ahead and see is he's going to section off these 490 years in three sections. Okay? But he's not going to do it in even sections. It's not like 490 divided by three and then you get those three even sections. That's not what he's doing. He's going to section off this 490 years in three sections, but they're different amounts of years. I'll show you in the text where that is and how it, how it is. So if you go to the middle of verse 25... You're going to see uh, where it says, The coming one of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be, there it is, seven weeks. Now, the word weeks is not weeks. It's seven. So, 77s, which means if you add seven times seven, that's 49. And so, out of the 490, the first section is 49. 49 what? I think it's years. All right? So, out of 490 years, the first section is 49 years. Now, right after that word seven, it says, Then for 62 weeks. Again, not weeks. But sevens, then for 62 sevens. So everybody on the spot, 62 times seven. Good, 434. So what we have is 430, we have 49 is the first section of years. The second section is 434 years. So that's uh, added all that up together, that's 483. 483 out of 490, which means we're missing a seven. We're missing one, one little seven year period. Well, that's mentioned in verse 27. If you take the the seven sevens, the 62 sevens, and the one seven, uh, 49, 434, plus seven, that total is 490. And that is the 490 that's mentioned in the very first two words in verse 24, 70 sevens, or 490. Now, we should stop and explain something. All right, so what we have right now, and I think the most uh, easy way to understand this is 490 years because it doesn't make sense that it's days because nothing significant really happens 490 days right after him, after this, nor does anything necessarily happen uh, 490 uh, weeks right after this. But the, if you look at it as 490 years and you start at the right time and end at the right time and then you look at the last one, then it does make sense to us that uh, the 490 should be years. Now, before we get to this, I should just go ahead and put my cards on the table so you can go ahead and understand. Um, The way that I understand this particular text, and again, third tier, eschatology, not everybody agrees, is out of the uh, 77s or the 490 years, I think 483 of them have happened. So the first section of 49 years and the second section of 434 years have happened. And then there's a gap just like there's a gap in the text, there's a gap. Uh, and that, that last week, that last seven years hasn't happened yet. I think that last seven weeks happens, or last seven years happens as the tribulation itself. Um, debate on that all over the place, for sure. Let me give you at least, as, out of this, at least four different understandings of how to understand this. All right? The first one is literal uh, but literal as in starting right there where Daniel is, right there in 500, and you count down straight 190 years, which brings you to right around to one, you start at 586 uh, in the fall of Jerusalem, you go straight down to 164, literal, and it ends right there at 164 BC, where nothing significant was really happening, and so that's one view. Most people don't hold to that, because if you just go straight 490 from 586 down to 164 BC, nothing significant happens. There are people that hold to that, but that's one view. The second view is, all right, 
forget the, forget the years literal. It's all symbolic. And as it's symbolic, uh, you don't have to necessarily um, go year by year, but the end of it all kind of happens when Jesus comes. So, you know, you're with, with Daniel, and the, the second view says it's all symbolic, and it happens at the advent of Christ. Um, but as Stephen Miller says, a strained interpretation tries to see all of this being fulfilled in Christ's first advent, which is true because as you get to verse 27 and you're talking about the desolator, this is probably Little Horn. This is the Antichrist. And it's pretty, it's pretty significantly strained to think that is it. That's, so literal ends in mid-first century B.C. Second one is symbolic, starting with Jesus. The third one is also symbolic, but it's instead of symbolic, put into the Daniel to Jesus is symbolic, but spread across even more like Daniel to the second coming of Christ. Not the first, but the second coming of Christ. So this is, you know, so far about 2,500 years until Jesus comes. When is he coming? Right now? A thousand years from now? Who knows, right? But the third view is it's symbolic, but it's spread across. Uh, and there's some, there's some difficulties with it. <clears throat> One guy has at least four, subjective. The build's hard to understand. The idea that Christ and church is going to be defeated in the last days isn't necessarily. The seven weeks are distributed really unevenly, if that's the view, uh, etc. So that's the third one. So, but then to the fourth one is another, you know, first, another literal view, but not start at 568 and go to, you know, first century, mid-first century at 164, but instead start a little bit later in the 400s when Ezra and Nehemiah actually rebuild Jerusalem rebuild, go down uh, to, to 483 years, which brings us right to either uh, around AD 25. And we don't know exactly the year Jesus was born, but it's either the baptism of Jesus or Jesus walks in on Palm Sunday. So uh, that's pretty significant stuff happening, right? If you end right there at the end of 433 years and start right when Ezra and Nehemiah start rebuilding the temple and you go right down 483 years, you land square on the moments where either Jesus is starting his public ministry of the baptism or basically about to go to the cross on Palm Sunday. So that's a pretty significant point in history. If we look back just, uh, you know, pretty, pretty objectively, we say that's pretty big. And then that deals with the last week happening later. So that's, that's that view, which means the first 49 years starts around 485. It's not 586 where the temple's destroyed, but instead later on in Old Testament history where Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah are given the kind of first beginning. And for uh, 49 years from 486, four, I'm sorry, 485, 458 BC to 409, Ezra and Nehemiah kind of complete that work of rebuilding. And then after that, Soon as 409 ends, the second 434-year stretch starts from 409 all the way to 25, or AD 25, where either Christ is baptized, that's what I think it is, and it starts as public ministry, but some say this could be where Christ walks in on Palm Sunday to die for sin. Uh, and again, it depends on when Jesus was born. And then once those first 483 uh, years are done, or the 69 weeks, or the 69 sevens are over, you still got one more week, which I think is the last week or, which, or, the, or the last seven years of this particular big vision, which is the seven-year tribulation. I'll explain that later. But again, some people don't hold to that. They just say, it's all symbolic. Jesus is going to come and end everything. Could be. Could be. All right, so here we are. Um, let's get to the verse 24, the clearest of the four verses because we can all rejoice in these things. And in this, uh, he's going to tell us this. So 77s are decreed 
490 years. These, this particular time period, and the most significant part is, listen, um, if we just stop and take a second back and we say, okay, what, what are some of the things that happens in that 490 years? Well, uh, the temple gets rebuilt, Jesus comes, he dies for the sins of the world, and if, if the last one's in, he comes a second time, defeats Satan, sin, and death, destroys the Antichrist, sets up his whole kingdom, and he basically rules and reigns as king forever and ever. We would say, okay, well, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty important stuff. So, <laughs> as a matter of fact, those are the biggest things that could ever happen in the world. And so, since that's the case, um, these 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And so when Daniel hears this, I think he fully understands it. And we should try to not miss the forest for the trees, not just zoom forward and just think about how all of this is going to happen, but instead hear it first as Daniel. Daniel's hearing this as an Israelite in exile for 70 years. God, we've been in exile for 70 years. We're wrong. We confess our sin. Please, Lord, bring us out of exile. I've read Jeremiah 25. I've read Jeremiah 29. It's supposed to ha- be, be over. Would you bring it to an end? And God comes up and says, you know what? It's decreed about your people in your holy city. As in God saying, hey, Daniel, God has not forgotten about Israel. He's dealing with you. He's holding to you. He loves you. He cares for you. And he's going to bring it to an end. So he's helping them see that, yes, I'm here. And I'm going to make these things better. Um, and so... This is what I'm going to do for your people, Israel, and your holy city, Daniel. Now, the truths that we're about to read are true for all believers for all time, which is awesome. But in verse 24, he's going to list six straight things. You can look at them right there in the text. Uh, this, these things are decreed. And that word decreed means uh, the Hebrew word hatak or cut out or decided. Or these things are decided by God for a specific purpose and they're going to happen. Here they are. Number one. To finish the transgressions. Number two, to put an end to sin. Number three, to atone for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal both vision and profit. Number six, to anoint a most holy place. So let's go through those one by one. Number one, where he says, the first thing I'm going to do is finish the transgressions. Um, so no matter what your eschatology is, you can, we all can agree upon these six things and rejoice over them as wonderful things that the Lord is going to accomplish. The six great accomplishments of our God for all history decreed in Daniel 9, 24. What are they? The first three are, are negative things because they're dealing with sin. The next three are positive things because they're dealing with fulfillment. Number one, he is going to finish the transgressions. And in the clearest sense, these verses, verses when he says he's going to finish the transgressions are teaching that one day God is going to bring to an end the act of the transgressions of his people. The actual sins that we as God's people commit will end one day. The rebellion in our hearts where we sin against God are going to actually happen. We know that after we get saved, we still sin, right? Those things that we still keep doing, though we're forgiven, the committing of those things will end. Praise the Lord. Perhaps you felt that. Maybe every time you sin, you're like, oh, I hate it. I just can't wait till the day where I stop doing this and stop feeling so about it. This is the promise that he's making to us. His people, because of the glorified body and the way in which he saves us, cause the transgressions to cease. (laughs) We are going to stop sinning. Amazing. That's the first thing. The second thing is to put an end to sin. You're like, well, that sounds the same thing. It's not. Yeah, but no. Here's how it's different. Sounds similar to the first, but here's how it's different. The first one speaks to 
putting an end to the sins or the transgressions that Christians do. The second one is kind of break, taking it up broader and saying, Jesus is going to put an end to sin itself. Sin itself. It's the whole big idea concept. Not individual sins, but sin is going to be over. And so this idea is a lot more general than that first one. It's in this broad, sweeping kind of way. Humans sin that you, you do individually. The idea of the entireness of it that's uh, around, God's going to put it to an end as well. You won't sin anymore, but sin itself is going to be obliterated fully in the new heavens and the new earth. That's awesome. It has no hope whatsoever. How is he going to do the finish of transgressions and to put an end for sin? How is he going to do number one and number two? It's number three. Finish off transgression, put an end to sin, and it's right there. Atone for iniquity. The transgressions are going to have their finality because Jesus is going to atone for iniquity. Atone means literally to cover He's going to cover. This is, comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system where the blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat in the temple showing that the sin of people was forgiven as it was covered by the blood. And we are covered by the blood. We are atoned for by the blood of Jesus. And it says he's going to do that for our iniquity, our, our wickedness. And so this atonement or this covering that's being given to us is made because we are uh, born into sin and we are continuing committing wickedness or sinful acts against God. And so the how of our transgressions and our sins ending is because the atonement for humanity's sin is made by Jesus on the cross and his blood was shed for the covering or for the atonement of our sin. And so this, as Daniel hears this, has just got to be absolutely great news. The way that God is announcing to us that he is the way to forgive sin and stay true to his own righteousness is by sending his own son. And so the blessings of the coming kingdom are being given to Daniel. And he's saying, you are going to be forgiven and your sin is not going to be remembered anymore. You're confessing those sins. Guess what? They will come to an end. And they will come to an end by this beautiful atonement of iniquity that's going to happen. And we know this side of the cross, it's all because of Jesus. That's the third accomplishment. That should make us want to stand up and scream and say amen. But I guess it's just me. All right, verse, don't do it. It'll be interrupting. All right, verse four. But you can say amen. You know, oh man, amen, Lord. Wow, good, thank you, Jesus. All right, number four. The next thing he's going to do in is to bring in everlasting righteousness. So not only is your sin going to be covered negatively, but positively, he's going to give you the righteousness of Christ. So at the end of the 77s, when it's all over and we live in a state of righteousness uh, in the new era, in the new heavens and the earth, we will live, as it says, in an everlasting righteousness. You will be completely made whole and righteous, not just sins forgiven, but also made righteousness. And we know this from the whole of scripture, righteousness of Christ. That's another accomplishment of God for us on our behalf. Then he does this in number five. Uh, this is really apropos, especially to Daniel, who is you know, a prophet that can understand visions and, ex- and explain them. He's going to say, to seal both vision and prophet. Seal both vision and prophet is like this accomplishment in number of visions. I'm ending prophecies. They're all done for. Uh, so this accomplishment in number five is that he's going to seal up. It's kind of the same idea of rolling up the scroll, putting away for preservation because it's time for usefulness is to a close. Don't need visions. Don't need prophecies anymore. Those things are all sealed up and they're done. The need for visions and prophecies has now come to an end. Why? Because you're with Jesus. 
<laughs> what do you need him for? You're with him already. He's there. You're, you're th- I don't need visions and prophecies of Jesus. I'm in heaven and I'm with him now forever. There's no need for these things anymore because I'm with him. So we're sealing up these things. But also when, as the sealing to put him away is the sealing of like God is authenticating that the visions and prophecies given to us in the scriptures have happened in the person and work of Jesus. They were fulfilled in Christ and they're over. We're sealing them up. It's all done. That's another accomplishment. And lastly, number six, the thing he's going to do is to anoint a most holy place. To anoint a most holy place. Literally, the anoint the most holy place is to anoint the holy of holies. That's literally in the scriptures what the Hebrew is, to anoint the holy of holies. Now, there's debate whenever he says to anoint a most holy place. Now, our ESV has decided that it's a place. It's literally to anoint the holy of holies. And so are we talking about a place or a person? Is he going to anoint a person or is he going to anoint a place? Because if he's going to anoint a person, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one that would be anointed here. Uh, But it's probably not, in this particular text, referring to Jesus. It's referring to a place. At least 39 times in the Old Testament, whenever this phrase is used, either with or without the definite article, uh, that's the word the, the, the Holy of Holies, it's referring to a place of the temple and the tabernacle, a place and so here he's going to say, he's going to anoint a most holy place. So it's a place, but what is the place? <laughs> is it a spiritual place, like the church, the people? Or is it a literal place or like a literal temple that happens at the end of the age? Um, my view is that he's talking about a literal place, a literal temple being built for the worship of Jesus at the end of the age. I think that seems to be what makes the most sense here is that in the future temple that's going to be built and consecrated for the service at the beginning of the millennium, this will be the great temple that we, the people of God, will in some manner be a part of or go to or be a part of the worship of Jesus. And so he's going to anoint that most holy place. It's been destroyed in 586. Uh, we know that. It's going to be, they're going to build it back up. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah build it back up. It's destroyed again in AD 70. And like, they're like, these things keep getting destroyed. It's going to be built up in that millennial reign, never to be destroyed again. And so he's going to anoint that most holy place. And for Daniel, this is, this is key because they, they've already experienced the idea of the temple being broken. We know that it's going to be destroyed again. And so here, uh, as we conclude these six great accomplishments, let's take one more little step back and try to think of this as Daniel. Because this is, this is so key for us. Uh, we hear all that and we kind of look at it in the big picture and we're like, yes, the Lord's doing these things. But also, we want to rejoice with Daniel and rejoice as the church. Why is Daniel so jazzed and, and, and rejoicing here? Here's what's going on. Daniel is in exile uh, some 70 years beforehand, right? And so God is speaking to Daniel some 500 years before the Messiah is even going to come. And as they're in exile... They are, th- and he's read Jeremiah 25, he's read Jeremiah 29, he knows that the 70 years is going to happen, and he's thinking, okay, God's about to end this thing, and surely, as he ends this thing, it's going to be political, and it's going to be militarily. This whole thing's about to end, and God's about to come in and start destroying some people. The politics are going to change in our favor, the military's going to come and start destroying, and we're going to be back to where it, the way it was. And so the places of priority that Daniel probably had were military and political. And God's saying, listen, I know that that's important to you and you think that's how it's going to happen. But what I'm telling you is not so small-minded. Instead, I've got this really big thing that I'm solving. Not your military problem, not the place. I'm talking about your sin. I'm going to end all of this. 
I'm going to, the Messiah is going to come and provide a termination of transgression and sin, the commencement of everlasting righteousness, and all your sin is going to be atoned for, and I'm going to set up an everlasting holy place one day. So as Daniel hears this, he's not really getting an answer of political and military victory. Instead, he's, God's telling him about the massive spiritual victory that's about to happen. So when Daniel hears this, his mind's just lifted up to, whoa, God is doing something way bigger than I envisioned. The big picture is something that God is always up to in our life. He is intricately involved in those details of our life, but the bigger picture, he's always working on for his glory and for our joy. Amen and hallelujah to that. And that's what Daniel's seeing here. So these six things that are accomplished, they are done by Jesus. He's going to see that they're going to happen through Messiah. And he's telling them, these six things are going to be accomplished and everybody's going to die to their sin and be raised to new life and righteousness, Daniel. I'm going to accomplish these things through Messiah, through my anointed one. And so one writer says, what a glorious prophecy this is. These six statements, we have the sum of all the good things that God is promising to do to men, perfectly realized in Jesus for all time. So here's your application. Here's, here's our application. We look at this. God shows up and says, these are the things I'm going to do in Christ. Daniel, you've been in exile for 70 years, and you want to go back. And I get it. And I know you want to go back. And so you're going to pray. You're going to confess your sin so that after the 70 years is over, you can go back. And that's good. 70 years wanting to go back, I get that you want to do that. But my real plan is not 70 years of exile for Israel. My real plan is 70 times 7 years of how to accomplish redemption in all of human history. So here's the application. Daniel, God is asking Israel to be faithful for 70 years. God is asking us, the church, to be faithful for 70 times 7 for all of him uh, his time to accomplish these things, which means, Daniel, live each day for the Lord, even though you're, on, you're in exile for 70 years. Therefore, church, live each day for the Lord in all of the 70 times 7 as we wait for the blessed return of our coming of our Lord. This world, we as Christians want to have things instantly. You know, we live in this microwave culture where I just want it right now. Why is Chick-fil-A not open on Sunday? Like, won't give me it now. Like, but God's telling you, listen, uh, in the fullness of time, I'm going to do things, and it's going to be slow moving. And in the meantime, just like Israel's supposed to live faithfully day in, day out in the 70 years of exile, the church is supposed to live daily, faithfully, day in, day out for the 70 times 7 until these six things are accomplished. These six accomplished are coming. They're, they're coming one day. They are going to come. Maybe in our lifetime and maybe not. But the point is that we should be living for the Lord every single day, patiently waiting for it. And living for him every single day, patiently waiting for it, is absolutely worth it. Singing the song of the Lord in Babylon every day. Being in the world, but not of it. That's the point that he's trying to get to us. That's verse 24. Probably the most uh, understandable, <laughs> which brings us to the harder parts. All right, so here we go. I have literally rolled up my sleeves because I hold a literal view here. All right, anyway, no one gets my puns. All right, verse four, or verse 20, where are we at? Five, verse 25. So here we go. This is hard. Sections. The first section is 49 years. The second section is 434 years. The second section, the last section is one year. And I believe that that last seven years is actually 
in the future. So we have 69 sevens and then one seven. There's a gap, and we're living in the gap. Uh, so here we go. Let's understand the first group of seven times seven or the first 49 years. Here we go. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. All right. So from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Israel. Now, some say that that uh, is King Cyrus in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. It's the very last verse of 2 Chronicles uh, that Cyrus says to the people, this is King Cyrus, we've already read, go rebuild Israel, which is around uh, the the, uh, 538 time. 538 is when he permits the captives from Jerusalem to go and start rebuilding. But if you start at 538 and count 49, nothing happens. Significant. But it doesn't have to mean that. It can also mean uh, the, the time in which Daniel um, lives until Ezra and Nehemiah actually start rebuilding. Because you know when you first get there, they don't, they don't start rebuilding right away. They build their houses, and God's like, what are you doing? Rebuild the temple. And like, oh, yeah, we better rebuild the temple. So the, the time where it actually starts happening is around 458 B.C. And from 458 B.C., some 49 years later, that first section at 409 B.C., that's when it as has actually happened. And that could refer to in 458 then where this decree, this word went out. Instead of being King Cyrus, the word went out from a king called King Artaxerxes. I'm just going to call him Art. King Art. King Art makes a decree and says to Nehemiah, rebuild it. And it starts at 458. And as he finishes, he finishes it around 40, uh, what did I say? 409 BC. And so I think that both make logical sense. I think that makes the most sense. So section one, the first groups of seven or the sevens, uh, the 49 is, I think, starting around 458 B.C., ending at 409 B.C., and that's when King Art uh, lets Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild. And when they finish rebuilding, you start the second one. So uh, go back to know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore Jer- Jerusalem, the coming of an anointed one, a prince... Uh, Shall there shall be seven years? So we have the coming of an anointed one or a prince. Uh, now, the anointed one that's going to come, this prince that's going to come, is going to be the ruler and, and reigner of, and the king in the universe, Jesus. Uh, he's the one that's going to bring out the six accomplishments in verse twenty-four. Uh, he's the one who lives already, and one day he's going to come. He's, it's going to mention him again in verse twenty-six when you see uh, in the. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one. It's just mentioning him to let you know he's coming again. But here we go. So verse, uh, middle still of verse 25. So um, there shall be 72 weeks. And then we have this new sentence. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. With squares and moat. So that brings us to number C, letter C, whatever it's called. The second group of sevens. So we have the first of 49. Now we're at this 62 sevens. Multiply that together as 434. I think that happens from 409 BC into AD 25. That's 434 years exactly. In AD 25. In AD 25, something significant is happening in the world in AD 25. Namely, this man Jesus is walking around and doing a, a lot of public ministry and claiming to be God. He also resurrects from the dead on his own power. Uh, but AD 25 is, because we don't know the exact birth year of Jesus, you know, we don't know that it happened at zero. We do know that he lived 33 years, but it could have been born early before zero in the calendar. We've just messed the calendars up. But my point is, 
uh, some 434 years, there is something significant happening. And it's either uh, when Jesus is baptized, and we know his public ministry is around three years, just, just three years. At the end of those three years, uh, he dies. So AD 25 is either his public ministry where he's baptized, or AD 25 is when he walks into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and a week later he's killed. It's one of those two. But if you go three years after that, uh, there's nothing significant happening. Or seven years, I'm sorry. Seven years after that, either one of those choices, nothing significant is happening. So seven years after Jesus is baptized, nothing's happening. Three years after Jesus is baptized, he's dead. A week, if, if it's the uh, enter into, I'm telling you this for a reason, but if you enter into uh, Palm Sunday, seven years after that, nothing significantly happened. The reason why is because of that, Jesus dies. But seven years out of either one of those, nothing's happening. The reason why is because if, that, if the year 25 ends the, the, the first two sections, and you count seven years later, because if there's no gap, you just go straight for another seven years, nothing of significant importance is happening at the end of those years. There's just, Jesus died four years ago, or six years ago. So, that's why I think the gap makes sense. More on that later. We'll come to that about the gap. But here we go. So we're on section C, the second group of sevens or the 62 sevens or the next 434 years, which is 409 BC to AD 25. And it says this, then for uh, 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So what is the it? The it is likely referring to the rebuilding of Israel. So uh, we have the coming of the anointed one that's told us who is Jesus. And it says for 62 years, or 62 weeks, or 434 years, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. These verses are hard to understand, but this is likely talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which is going to be difficult. Ezra and Nehemiah do some, and it's rebuilt into, uh, we know it's torn down in AD 70, so by the time Jesus comes, it is rebuilt, and it says it's built with squares and moat. There's no moat in, in Jerusalem. So what is the moat? It also, squares and moat can be streets and trenches. We do know that Jerusalem actually had trenches and had a pretty intricate conduit for water system around Jerusalem, extensive water tunnels, and so it could be that. And then it says, but it's going to happen in a troubled time, which is talking about the struggles that the Israelites had from 434 to AD 25 and all of uh, being in that time period where they're trying to be re- rebuild Jerusalem, but also during Nehemiah's governorship, which, which is trouble, tru- troubled. But the troubled time is after that through the rule of Alexander the Great. If you remember from the statues and the beasts, Alexander the Great ruled everything where he was Greek and then the Romans took over. And so there is a troubled time happening in that time period during all this. But nevertheless, it's going to say that the temple will be rebuilt. So when Jesus comes, it is rebuilt because it's AD 70 where it's actually torn down. Now, that brings us to uh, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks is over. Now, it doesn't say, I want to be sure I'm clear here. After the 62 weeks, it doesn't say that the 63rd week starts. It's just saying after the 62 weeks ends, something happens. So it still can be understand that that last seven years is later. So after that's over, something's going to happen. Well, it's AD 25. So what could it be? So number D, the culmination of the 69 sevens, that's 483 years. The culmination of it is the coming of the anointed one. So here's what it says. 
after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, the word anointed one in, in, in Hebrew is Messiah. Do we have a word in English that sounds like the Hebrew word Messiah? We do. It's called Messiah. <laughs> it means Jesus, the Christ. And so the Christ, the Messiah, shall be cut off and have nothing. At the end of the 62 weeks, at AD 25, if you're taking this literal view, a man named Messiah is going to cuff, come, he's going to be cut off, and he shall have nothing. So stop there. The culmination of these 69 sevens is in the coming of this anointed one or this Messiah. Now, that means what he's saying here. Um, we're officially could be starting, starting that 484th year. But if you count seven years past that, um, whenever Jesus is cut off, even if it's the beginning of his public ministry or the end, so if it's the beginning of his public ministry, he dies three years later. At the end, he dies one week later. Nothing significant happens seven years after that. So if we start for year 484 there and we go to 490 after that, nothing in history happens. Big. So that last week makes more sense that it's gapped off later and that we're just talking about after 483 years, Jesus comes and dies, and the last week happens later. Here we go. But it says this. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Let's take anointed one shall be cut off and has nothing. Dissect that in three phrases. An anointed one. In context, as I said, it makes the most sense that this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. And um, it, since it's Jesus, we see that it's he is the anointed one. He's the only one that's ever called Messiah in all the Bible. He's going to, it says, shall be cut off. Shall be cut off. This Hebrew phrase, shall be cut off, uh, always refers to when someone is cut off, it's shall be cut off. I'll tell you, in Isaiah 53, 8, it uses this exact language about the, the Messiah being cut off in death. This is what it says. Um, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for generations who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So if you look, the, the Messiah in Isaiah 53 in verses 4 through 11, we're diving into verse 8 and showing that it's cut off. I just encourage you to write Isaiah 53, 4 through 11 and go back and read Isaiah 53, 4 through 11 and see the entirety of that. It's, that's clearly Jesus. And Jesus is being cut off in death. He's being cut off in, in death because he's stricken with the transgressions of his people. This is, what we, this is the proper teaching of the gospel, that he's cut off in death by dying on the cross because he's stricken or the sins of the people are laid on Christ. And then it says, anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This have nothing um, is literally and not to him. Or better way to understand it is not for himself. He's dying. He's He's cut off because he's the anointed one, and he's dying not for himself, but for his people. And so at the end of the 62 weeks, Jesus comes and dies not for himself, but for his people. That's that prophecy that's being told to us here, uh, that he's literally going to come. He's going to have nothing at the end of it. And even as he finishes dying uh, before the resurrection, there's all these appearances of he didn't even accomplish what he set out to do. This disappointed king looks like he has nothing. Of course, Three days later, the resurrection shows us that that's not true. But he's coming and dying, not for himself, but for his people. And so uh, as we see this, we see that that's only Christ. At the end of those 62 weeks, around AD 25 to AD 28, uh, whatever year Jesus was born, in that three-year period, he comes and he dies for the sins of his people so that we could, his people, receive eternal life forever. All right? Now, 
That's at the culmination of 69. We still have one more. But it's also going to tell us that after those 62 weeks, uh, after those 483 years, something else is going to happen before that last week starts. So if you look at it, and it says right here, so he should be cut off and shall have nothing. We know there is something else pretty significant that happens 40 years after Jesus dies, right? In AD 70, I've said it a lot, the temple in Israel is absolutely destroyed. It's ransacked by the Romans. So here we see this. And the people of the prince of who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Romans are the ones that destroyed this, this city and sanctuary. And so when we see that, that brings us to letter E. After the 69 sevens, also, uh, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. When you see this, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's speaking of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now, let's make sure we understand all this because this is <laughs> quite interesting language. Watch what it says. It doesn't say the prince who is to come destroys it. It says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy it. So we can stop and we got a lot of questions. Who's the people? Who's the prince who is to come? This is what I think really plainly. The people are the Romans. The people are the prince who is to come. I think that's the Antichrist. Uh, I'll explain why. But the Romans, which just means um, likely in one day the Antichrist will, will be Roman in some way. How? I'll explain. That's coming. All right. But here we see this. Uh, the subject of this particular sentence is the people. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy. The people destroy the sanctuary. So after that, this, this temple is destroyed. And it's destroyed by the people. But there is a prince of the people. More to come on that. As I said, I think it's the, the Antichrist. But the people are going to destroy the temple. And this particular people were the Romans. And the Romans, uh, in history, if we look back in AD 70, all historians at the time say, yes, it was the Romans that destroyed this particular temple in AD 70. And so we have this, this promise that's being told to Daniel. In AD 70, the, the Romans are going to destroy the sanctuary. Now, um, we have this gap that I've talked about that I think is going to happen. If you look in the middle of 27, you have that one week, and he shall make a strong covenant with me for one week. That week hasn't happened. That seven years hasn't happened yet. Uh, and it doesn't make sense that it follows right after the first two sections if we're looking at this literal view. It makes sense that it happens later. And you can just stop and ask yourself, is there something in the Bible significant that happens in, and it lasts seven years? <laughs> is there anything in the Bible that, that happens that's seven years long that seems to be pretty significant? Well, yeah, if you look at it, there's this pretty significant thing in Revelation called the tribulation that lasts for seven years. And so it would make sense that that set last seven weeks or seven years would be the tribulation. That's what makes the most sense and that it's going to come. And so this, this literal gap uh, until it happens is how those who hold to this view understand that last thing to happen. Now, that, since that's the case, and so we're thinking, well, we know a lot about the tribulation. It's pretty terrible to live in. It's, there's war everywhere, and there's this dude called Antichrist that rules and reigns over it uh, in a lot of ways and sets up a, a kingdom. So since that's the case, when we come back to this, we're going to see some stuff uh, to, to help us understand. But, but watch this. And the people of the prince of the one who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. And then it says this. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be... Uh, its end will come with a flood, and to the end... There shall be war. Desolations are decreed. 
So the end of this particular uh, city of Jerusalem when it's destroyed, it comes, as it says, with a great flood. flood. Not a literal flood. It's just emphasizing the magnitude of the devastation. There was, it's like a flood, as in like a massive devastation that happens uh, because as the Romans swept through the city and destroyed it, it was just absolutely, as it says, terrible. Uh, and so the point, the point is, as you read this, desolations are decreed and there shall be wars. The important point is that uh, the Lord has given judgment upon Israel. Jerusalem is going to experience a time of conflict that includes these desolations. The war and the desolation that's brought about it will continue all the way to the end until the city is completely destroyed in AD 70. It's, it's a tough time to be an Israelite in this particular time. Now, finally, we get to verse 27. So that brings us to, we've seen the temple be destroyed, and now we come to F. So let's put up letter F. The events of the 70th seven. So we've seen Jesus come. We've seen the anointed one die as he's cut off. We've seen the temple be destroyed in AD 70. Now we just have this last little thing hanging out there, this last little week. What is it? What's going on? Number F, the events of the 70th seven. It's right there in the middle of where it says one week. And one week, as I said, is the unaccounted for last week in Daniel that hasn't happened. Uh, And there's a whole lot of debate if this one week happens in the first century or whatever, but it makes the most sense that it's going to happen later. So let's go to verse 27 and try to uh, look at it word by word and understand. And the first two words are massively controversial. And he. (laughs) Who's the he? Who's the he? This is a massive debate. Who's the he? Some would say it's Jesus that it's he. I don't think that it's Jesus. I don't think it's referring to Jesus. But here's why they would say it's Jesus. Because notice what he does. He does some stuff that Jesus does. If you look at it. And he shall make a strong covenant with me and put it into sacrifice and offering. Well, Jesus does that. He does make a covenant and he does put it into the sacrificial system, namely because he dies once for all. Uh, but it doesn't make sense that that's the he, uh, that Jesus is the he there. It makes more sense that it's actually the antichrist, not the he. I'll explain. Number one, uh, textually, whenever you have this, this pronoun he show up in the middle of a, of a, of a section, uh, Hebrew grammatical rules is fall back to the first subject, and that subject that's being mentioned is that next pronoun he. Well, if you go back, who's the singular person mentioned? It's the, it says, uh, the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come. Now, that could be Jesus still, but it doesn't make most sense because if you look at this, uh, he makes a strong covenant with many for seven years. Jesus I don't know of a seven-year covenant that Jesus makes with anybody. He makes eternal covenants. That is the new covenant. I, I make this covenant with you forever. And so it makes most sense that this he would be the prince who is to come or the prince of the Romans or Little Horn from uh, chapter 7 of Daniel or the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, or the Antichrist, as John calls him, or, you know, all the titles he has. And here's why. Here's why. Um, the he refers to this particular uh, he as the people of the quote-unquote prince who is to come, which we've already established, that's the prince of the Romans. Because the, Ro- the statue and the four beasts, whenever we start at the very top of the statue, it's pretty clear. Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks. And then you get to the bottom of the statue, the fourth one. Uh, the vision's like, it's the Romans, but it's the foot's like it's the Romans, but it's also kind of like the Antichrist's little temporary kingdom. Or the four beasts, you know, the, the first one, it's the same thing. You've got the Babylonians, you've got the Medo-Persian Empire, you've got the, the, the Greeks. But then the fourth beast is like, well, you're supposed to be Romans, but the fourth beast is unlike any other. And that's clearly the 
kingdom of the Antichrist. And so there's this blending in both of Daniel 2 and 7 of the Roman Empire and the Antichrist Empire into this like confusing amalgamation of both. And so when we see this prince of the Romans... It makes total sense to think in Daniel's mind that the Romans and the Antichrist are all the same. So this prince of the Romans is the prince of devastation or the Antichrist or the prince of the fourth kingdom. He is, that is the Antichrist. He's the little horn given to us in Daniel 7. So move forth to he. He has to be, in all of context of Daniel, the Antichrist. And of course, as I said, there's a seven-year covenant problem where we don't see... um, Jesus making this seven-year covenant. He makes the new covenant. And uh, so you can also ask the question, well, isn't God the one that makes covenants? Uh, can man make covenants? Well, they can. This word covenant, beret, uh, is used in, in Genesis where Abraham in uh, Genesis 21, 27 and following, Abraham, a man, makes a covenant with Abimelech, a man. So men can make covenants. Or in Genesis 31, 44, Jacob makes a beret, a covenant with Laban. So men can make, quote unquote, barets with covenant. This particular guy makes a gabar beret, a strong covenant. And so this strong covenant that he makes, if we think at it in context, is there a sense in which the, an, the Antichrist could make a gabar beret, a strong covenant? Um, yes, the Prince of Rome can make a strong covenant because, as one commentator says, this is the implication of the, of the Antichrist forcing this agreement by means of superior strength. If there's anything that we know about the Antichrist, he does have these kind of qualities where he could do that. It certainly sounds like something Antichrist would do. So, and he uh, is going to make a strong covenant. He's going to make a strong covenant with many, uh, this many likely is Israel. He's going to make this in the end times, make this strong covenant with Israel for one week or for that seven years. And then it says, and for half the week. Now, um, half of seven is three and a half. <laughs> That's pretty simple. So for half of it, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end or poured out is on the desolator. So that verse 27, all of it, does not sound like first century stuff. It sounds like end time stuff, namely Antichrist stuff, because we got seven years, we got three and a half, we got him putting it into sacrifice or doing something. He's making abominations, and he also, it calls him the desolator at the very end. So if you don't want to call him the, the prince who is to come, you can call him the desolator, you can call him little horn. He's got all kinds of titles. Uh, but he, something's going to be poured out, a decree is going to be poured out, namely by Jesus. So let's try to understand here. Here we go. So number one, as we've already said under this, is that the Antichrist is going to make a seven-year covenant with Israel in verse coming time. Number two, Antichrist is going to come to power, and at least for three and a half years, he's going to claim to be God. He's going to have a lot of power. If you know anything about end times teaching, there's a seven-year period where the first three and a half years are like, you know, not terrible, but not great. Uh, And then the last three is awful. It's just awful to be a Christian at the time. And so... Here we go. Let's try, to, let's try to understand section two. It says, and for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, thus far we understand that this prince of Rome or prince who is to come or the desolator is going to do something. He's going to put an end for sacrifices and offering for about three and a half years at some point during this seven-year strong covenant that he makes. And so we can ask ourselves, is there a seven-year period in the Bible where it sounds like this desolator would be really, really powerful. And for three and a half years, he'd have some kind of special kind of control. And the answer is, yes, it is. And it makes most sense to be 
in Revelation, namely the Antichrist. Now, I want, to, I want you to try to see where we're going to get all, all these things from in Revelation. Uh, if you remember, back in Daniel chapter 7, uh, the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 is going to tell us that he's going to have some kind of tremendous power over Christians and he's going to hurt them and destroy them when he's, when he's before Jesus comes. So in Daniel chapter 7, it talks about it and he says, he, the, the, the desolator, little horn, the antichrist, he will speak words against the Most High. He will wear out the saints of the Most High. They will think to change their times and the laws and they will be given to his hand for time, times, and half a time. He's going to have like a really strong period of power for time, half a time, and times, or however he's, time, times, and half a time. So you're like, oh, how long is that? <laughs> That's not very specific. That sounds kind of broad. Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, it uses that exact same phrase, time, times, and half a time. Now, it's speaking of the, uh, m- the woman given birth to a child. And most likely this is talking about Jesus. But nevertheless, it still uses the language of time, half a time, and time. So if you look at Revelation chapter 12, it says there's a place where should be nourished for, here it is, time, times, and half a time. And so we say, okay, well, there's this birth of a child. And this child, uh, after the mother gives birth, is going to be nourished for this particular time. Well, how long is that? Well, in the exact same chapter, in chapter 12, verse 6, it tells us almost the exact same sentence as it says, as it says in verse 14. But instead of in time, half a time, time, times and half a time, it actually puts a day number on it. It says she's going to go to a place prepared by God in which she's going to be nourished for 1,260 days. So what we can see from this is time, times, and half a time can be understood as 1,260 days. And if you're wondering, that's three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. And so we have this back over to the particular time where he's going to have three and a half years. And that points us to, well, three and a half years of uh, a time where Antichrist is going to be able, as Daniel 7.25 says, do a lot of bad things. Do a lot of bad things. Well, we know in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, uh, it says this. The beast was given a mouth, haughty, and blasphemous words, and he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 42 months is 1,260 days, and that's three and a half years. So we have, we're building a case here to be able to see the Antichrist has a period of three and a half years where he's able to do a lot of damage. Um, and also it says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, something very similar. It says, um, I'll start in verse 1. Uh, I was given a measuring stride like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar who's worshipped there, but not the measure, the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant this authority to two witnesses. They shall prophesy for 1,260 days. Uh, so this 42 months are where the nations are going to trample inside and outside of this temple. All right, well, if we, it's hard to understand trample inside out of this temple, but what we can understand is the temple is going to be used in such a way that it's not its design use. It's not its design use, and it's going to happen for some three and a half years. Well, that gets us back over to this, and we see that he's going to make a strong covenant with many for a week, and for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and systems. So there's, a, there's textual language in Daniel chapter 9 where the temple is not supposed to be used in a way that it's supposed to be used. What is that? 
What is that? Because it says, right after it says that, um, put an end to sacrifice and offering. Look what it says right out there, the middle part of 27. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. On the wings of abominations shall become one who makes desolate. Well, Jesus refers to that. Jesus himself, and in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, and he even references Daniel, and he says, like Daniel says, and he, this is what he says, and Daniel, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, so Daniel mentions it here in Daniel 9. He also mentions it in chapter 10 and chapter 12. Uh, 10 and 12, 11 and 12, one of the two. Um, but he mentions it three times in Daniel. And D- Jesus, in chapter 24, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then it's about to get bad, right? Well, that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation because it's told it to us that that's going to happen. So Jesus says, when it's spoken of by the prophet Daniel, uh, in the holy place, he literally says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he's standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation is going to take place. Where's the holy place? Well, it's when the temple is being used by someone in a way that it's not designed to be used. Namely, the Antichrist does what's called, he calls, the abomination of desolation. Let's get a little bit more description on that. Paul gives us that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he describes the abomination of desolation or the temple's use being designed, what it's not designed to do, specifically by the Antichrist. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion comes first. And at then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who appears, and here it is, abomination of desolation, exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. So that he takes the seat in the temple of God, that's a holy place, takes a seat in the holy temple of God and says, proclaims to be God. Well, that's awful. This is blasphemy in its highest when the Antichrist literally calls himself God. And so we see this, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. There's this, this wing is not to be understood as a literal wing, but like, uh, in a sense, um, what's the best way to understand this? Um, an overspreading, like wings overspread. So there's this overspreading of a lot of desolations that are going to happen. And the one that rises to the surface as the worst is, as Jesus calls, the abomination of desolation. When someone stands in the holy place and Paul says, when the Antichrist stands in the place of the temple that we already saw in Revelation is going to be used in ways that it's not designed to happen. And when that happens, it's not, it's not good at all. Now, that's going to happen, as he says, for some three and a half years. God will not allow that to last very long. So in that 70th week, the first half is not great, but not terrible. The second is, is terrible. But whenever he calls himself God, he will only let that, God will only let that happen for three and a half years. Afterwards, he's like, this is over. Um, because after three and a half years, Daniel 9, 27, Revelation 13, 5, Revelation 11, 2, Daniel 7, 25, Revelation 12, 14, Revelation 12, 5, first, all of first to three and a half years, it ends. And God says, Jesus says, over. I'm coming and I'm going to put a stop to this after three and a half years. And that brings us to number three. Jesus will kill the little horn or the desolator or the man of lawlessness or the antichrist or whatever you want to call him with the breath of his mouth. After three and a half years, it's like, I'm done with this. Here we go. Look at the very end. Until the decreed end. The decreed end is when God says, I'm killing the Antichrist. 
I have decreed it, may it be so, is poured out. The killing of him is literally like this outpouring of putting on him on that desolator, on that man of lawlessness, on the little horn. I'm going to destroy him. So that brings us to number seven. God will bring about, or I don't know where we are, F3. <laughs> That'll bring out the end of him uh, as the desolator's end. Here's how the Bible describes the desolator's end. I'm going to read Rome, uh, Revelation, and I'm going to read Paul again in 2 Thessalonians. So Revelation says this. This is when he throws him into the lake of fire. Uh, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered to make war on the one that was sitting on the, uh, on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs that he'd been deceived and had the mark of the beast, and he told all those to worship his image. And those two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur forever. That's how Revelation describes the killing. Now, the reason why I said Jesus is going to kill him with the breath of his mouth is because that's how Paul describes it. It's not chronic hypostosis. Instead, it's this. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. When the lawless one will be revealed, who's already said in 2 Thessalonians, uh, that that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord will, here it is, kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Ultimately, Messiah will rule and reign and destroy everything that is evil and wrong when it comes to the Antichrist. And he does it at the end of that 490 years. So let's take this kind of step back and get the whole plan. Because Daniel's hearing this and he's like, oh man, what you're telling me is to be patient, we have to be patient 70. The church has to be patient 70 times 7. But ultimately, you're going to accomplish six amazing things and it's going to be done by Messiah. You're going to destroy the foot of the, the statue. You're going to destroy the fourth beast in Daniel 7. And it's all going to be done by Messiah. And man, this guy Messiah is bigger than anything I could ever imagine. It's not some political and military thing that I want to happen in this 70 years, like get me out of Babylon. This is a spiritual thing that's happening, bigger than I can ever conceive. You're taking care of all of our sin, forgiving us, and given us the Messiah's righteousness. That's what Daniel hears as he hears this vision. So how does Daniel 9, 20 through 27 point us to Jesus? <laughs> there's, no, there's no trouble here. It's all in the text. God is telling us his divine plan for all the ages. As I've titled it, the glorious work of Jesus. He's telling us that the coming Messiah is going to die for sin and make his people righteous. At the end of the age, he's going to destroy desolator. He's going to destroy the prince of Rome, the little one, the antichrist, the lawless one, whatever you want to call him. And living in that time will be terrible as God's church is persecuted. But those wicked ways don't last very long. Messiah loves his church so much. All with him set up the millennial reign and then eventually set up the new heavens and the new earth and set up his everlasting kingdom. And every other earthly kingdom that's ever existed will be absolutely destroyed and blown out like chaff in the wind, as it says in Daniel chapter 2, because the real king of all the earth is going to set up his kingdom and it will never, ever end. Daniel heard this and was massively encouraged. Israel heard this and was massively encouraged. We, the church, should hear this and just be unbelievably encouraged that those six things, great accomplishments of God for all history, decreed in Daniel 9.24, are going to happen for us. Sin's going to be forgiven. It's going to be atoned for. And we will receive the righteousness of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy you've given to us in Christ. And I pray that this long sermon would be remembered. If I said anything wrong, Lord, forget those things, all of us. And the things that are true, let us hold to those things and love those things and treasure those things in our heart and mind and soul. Um, we thank you for Jesus that makes these things happen. 
We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.